Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Ina Sutton. Ina is the Managing Director at Sussex Elderly Care, a community interest company with a focus on the domiciliary care industry. Uh, Ina, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us, and it certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are still living under some form of social restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, Freedom Day is hopefully coming now on July the 19th, but we've been living under some form of lockdown over the course of the last 14 months, haven't we? So with all of that in mind, Ina, since you're, of course, in the care industry, you've been on the front line throughout this to what extent has it affected you and your organization all of this well initially when the virus started in march we were like most people and we were ignorant as to what to expect clients were frightened and some clients cancelled the service which put a strain on our financial resources it also put a strain on staff we had to ensure that we had good communication service with our staff so we did things like setting up WhatsApp messaging service so that the staff could immediately contact us and at any time if there were any issues that they were bothering them um, or they were they were concerned about about themselves or about the client. Um, obviously, um, with uh, uh, when the pandemic started, uh, we had to furlough some people off. And that meant that it was the manager, the registered manager and myself who was running the service. And we wanted to make sure that we carried on um, um, providing continuity. Um, Obviously, there were quite some challenges that we had to endure besides the anxiety and the fear that gripped both our clients and our staff. Mm. Um, we there were things where we had some clients who are um, who have dementia, and obviously because we were wearing full PPE and wearing masks, and they couldn't quite understand seeing us wearing all the paraphernalia, and they couldn't understand us talking to them because obviously the mask is a barrier, and it, it created more anxiety. And some clients, they some families, they. Um, cancelled the service, obviously because they were very worried about having traffic into their home and with the exposure to the virus, which put a strain on our finances and on on our resources. Having said mm. that, um, once um, people started calming down and gaining their trust again, that opened up. However, we, we could not operate as fully as we did beforehand um, due to being having staff who were on furlough. So a lot of the calls were being managed by the manager and myself and also by the small group of carers that were working with us. So it did, it provided a lot of challenges. However, it was a challenge for us as well 
to think outside the box to keep our clients safe and to provide continuity of service. And by thinking outside the box, um, we we provided satellite pickups for um, carers to pick up their PPE. So as we delivered them ourselves, we provided shopping trips. So we started doing shopping for clients to prevent them from coming into town. And we were also giving clients um, lifts um, to the surgery or for COVID testing just to minimize their exposure to the virus. So it was a challenge. Uh, I would say a lot of positive um, positiveness came out of it as well mm-hmm. because it enabled us to look at a situation where we, we wanted to provide a person-centered um, provision um, for our clients and also look at our staff and try to support them as much as possible. And during this time, obviously with the anxiety, we had quite a few people who were off either due to the anxiety of contacting the virus or else um, because they were furloughed because they had underlying health issues. Unfortunately, um, due to the pandemic, many of the clients, they lost out on contact. So they were on isolation. So they lost contact from their families coming down to visit or else if they went to day centers, they were all closed down. So the only people they were actually seeing were us going in and we were providing reassurance to the family um, that they were safe and that they were fine and we were doing the best we could um, to provide um, maintain contact really with their loved ones because some of the clients' relatives, um, they lived abroad or else they lived outside the area. So mm-hmm. that, you know, created much more anxiety um, to them. So that's where we were really. Um, um, but we were trying to all the time um, look at different ways. We came to challenges when the PCR testing was not available to everybody. Um, so we had to, at some stage, we had to organize and take clients um, to to go to Brighton, for example, mm-hmm. or to Eastbourne to get a COVID test. And that was quite difficult because they couldn't quite understand what was happening. We did the same when um, they were called up for their vaccines. We gave um, clients lifts so that, you know, um, we could help them as much as possible um, so that they could get their vaccine in time. So yeah, there, there were all the challenges that that we that we encountered. I think our biggest challenge was trying to get PPEs in the early stages, and it was costing us a lot of money, which would put a drain on our resources because a box of gloves was costing so much money, as well as trying to to get um, simple things like masks and and gloves and aprons. Um, so that we made sure that all the stuff they were safe and even like shields. So there was there was a lot of anxiety, there was a lot of uncertainty, mm. and also because nobody knew exactly what was happening, and there were different um, advice coming um, from different um, sections um, in, in the community, um, how to wear PPEs, when to wear PPEs. So that, that caused a little bit of confusion. However, now we are in a position, um, we, we were very fortunate um, that we could access um, funding, um, which really kept us afloat. 
and enabled us to continue providing this valuable service to the community. And where we were fortunate as well is that the service that we provide is only in Seaford. We don't go outside the area. Mm. So that helps us to maintain um, the, the service in, in one place, minimizing um, the risks of, of catching COVID or passing it on to our clients. Yeah, so a lot of interesting stuff there to talk about. Um, I think you're not alone in the fact that um, a lot of care companies suffered with PP provision over the course of the opening weeks of the pandemic, and that's a situation that's slowly stabilised as time has gone on and procurement has become smoother. But with regards to sort of government's advice and guidance, of course, we all appreciate that it was quite sort of foggy, if you will, in the early weeks of the crisis when we didn't know much about the virus. But as we sort of moved forward, do you think that the guidance and support that you've received as an industry from government and from local authorities has been up to scratch or have you found that you've been fending for yourselves a lot of the time? Oh, I would say it's marvellous actually and we were extremely grateful. Mm. Um, We wouldn't have been able to survive if we didn't um, take advantage of the furlough scheme um, because we had quite a few of our carers who, who were furloughed and the office staff, they were furloughed as well. So I mean, we're very, very grateful and also we, we could access funding so that we could get PPEs and now we have a good stock of PPEs. I, I think, um, I, I feel in, in our industry that there were quite a few positive outcomes. It also gave us the opportunity to reassess and to see where our, our service was and how we could actually develop it so that things like this happen, we would be able to be more well prepared. Um, this was unprecedented for for everybody, basically. So I think um, we were very fortunate in, in this country, actually, to have the support that, that we had um, from the government. Um, as I said, from the furlough schemes and as well as for funding and grants um, to keep um, businesses afloat. Yeah, so certainly. I think where we are now, I, I think we are in a better position and I think a lot of things, a lot of things that came out as well, where we had to think outside the box, and where we worked very closely with the community, like for example with the community nurses and the GP surgeries, we were having like weekly briefings with them, where we we were discussing clients that we were really concerned about, so that we were being more proactive. And these are things which I hope that we will carry on, um, although we are in a much safer position now. But a lot of, I think, because we had to think in a different way and we had to make do and utilize the resources we have, I think we have learned a lot and I feel we need to keep on utilizing um, these services um, that we initiated during this time. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've come away from the pandemic having learned a great deal, haven't we, in that respect, from having to adjust to this sort of whole new reality. So when we think about sort of lessons learned from this, what are some of the key takeaways for you and your organisation, do you think? Um, As I said before, I would like to maintain the partnership working with the GPs and Mm. the nurses and other professionals um, to fulfil the aim of the organisation. Um, while it was pretty tough in the beginning, and this, however, has enabled us to look at the services in a different way. For example, now we've gone into digital recording. Um, obviously, um, this will enable 
um, clients and their families that will be able to access um, support plans. And also we are regulated by CQC, so they would be able to access um, our paperwork as well. And we are looking at the company strategically um, to be able to face any challenges that come across our path. And as I said before, we are very grateful for the funding that we have received and we need to continue to receive funding for us to continue to deliver this valuable service to the community. Yes, that's going to be very important. And I think pre-pandemic as well, what the government did promise was a root and branch review of the social care sector. And I think because of what's come about during the pandemic and what it's exposed in terms of the underlying issues that the industry is facing, I think that review needs to be brought forward and it's going to be more important now than ever because there's a lot of public support now for social care because we appreciate more the sort of value of those on the front line. And there's going to be a lot of pressure now for the government to come forward with that review and really make sure that the sector is revamped and ready to build back better as the government wants to do as we move out of this. Exactly. I, I, I quite agree. Um, I mean, in the beginning, the, the focus was on the NHS, but then very quickly they began to realise, you know, that it was not only the NHS, um, you know, there were the people who are on ground level. And also it cost, it did in the beginning, it caused anxiety. As soon as you went outside the front door, you were always worried, you were frightened, you know, in case you got it. And it's not because, I think for us, you know, being hands-on, it's not not that you wanted to get the virus, but I think our greater fear was, was transmitting it, and then you were responsible if somebody, um, you felt if you caused the death, you know, or you, you caused somebody being extremely ill. I think that fear um, gripped most carers than anything else. And now that we have the vaccines and we have, you know, um, encouraged people, we were very lucky because, I would say all our carers have got the vaccine now. So it gives you a little bit more of a reassurance. And although there is always the risk, but there is also, it's like you have influenza. You know, it comes every year, you take precautions. But as as long as you know that you are taking those precautions and you have a duty of care to protect yourself and protect others, that, that's the most you can do. And I agree with the government, you know, that is pushing forward. Um, to, to ensure that these vaccines are taken up by everybody. Um, it's, it's difficult to come on the right track, um, but I think um, we are going down the right path. Yeah, hopefully so. And it's going to be a very interesting time as we move out of social restrictions for the care sector, as hopefully the changes the industry needs to see are slowly phased in. So over the course of the next sort of 12 months and indeed beyond now, Ina, what is your hope for the industry at large? And where do you sort of see your business being this time, say in 2022? Well, I mean, as a social enterprise, what, what I would like to, to see is to come back to some normality where the clients, they can enjoy um, going back to their weekly clubs. They can enjoy seeing their family. Um, however, as as I said before, you know, maintain the contact with their family. We learned, um, you know, lessons learned during the pandemic is we need to keep them in the forefront. And uh, a lot of good has come out. Um, out of a very serious situation and I think we need to embrace those issues. I, I very strongly believe that that people they need to listen, they need to listen to professional advice and for people to, to do get vaccinated and to make the, the, the community safe 
and make themselves safe. I don't think that this is something that is going away. I think this is something that we are going to be living with and we need to make to maintain safety um, to, you know, towards towards the people who are working and to, towards the, the, the service that they are delivering. We will still maintain using full PPEs regardless um, whether um, you know there, there won't be any any need for it anymore. However, we will still maintain that because I believe that also you're looking at statistics. You know, you can see that there were less people who contacted colds, less people who contacted flu this year, and I am sure because we are taking more. Um, hand hygiene, we were wearing full PPE and we are following protocols. Yeah, it's going to be really, really important moving forward, isn't it? Sort of how the profession adapts to that post-COVID world. And I think it is going to be a relief when sort of extensive PPE usage isn't a mandatory thing anymore, because you mentioned right at the start, it has caused a little bit of anxiety in client interaction, Mm -hmm. hasn't it? Because I suppose when you sort of have somebody who is receiving care and maybe does have one or two sort of neurodiversity issues, maybe one or two sort of mental health concerns as well, it can be difficult sort of seeing people sort of dressed up in extensive protective clothing because it can almost come across as a little bit intimidating so the removal of those restrictions going forward is going to be really important and as you say to allow that to come into place I suppose the vaccination program being fully rolled out to care staff that's going to be so so important as well. Definitely I quite agree you know and also with that as social enterprise I would like to Start up again. We every year we hold a health, wealth, and well-being event. Obviously, due to COVID, we have not been able to do so. And we we hold events like that so that people they will know what there is available in the community. You know, our aim is so that you know elderly people don't get marginalised and um, because of their age. And we we want to recreate again. You know, um, what we were doing beforehand. We want Seaford. We're a small town. We want it to be an age-friendly. There are other, um, com- you know, other um, communities who um, have who are working like a dementia-friendly um, community and an age-friendly community. And the aim of the organisation is to make sure that Seaford is both age-friendly community as well as um, a dementia-friendly community, and that is our aim is so that people, they, although they might have health issues, although they are reliant on carers, however, you know, um, we want to make sure that they're not marginalised by society or isolated. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a very interesting time ahead, isn't it, to make sure that these things don't happen and that we keep sort of hopefully mental health well-being, keeping making sure that people aren't isolated at the forefront of our minds because we do have to sort of heed the lessons of the pandemic, don't we? It's a case of as we start to revert to normal life, we can't forget some of the key things that we've taken away from this period and that's going to be sort of a challenge on the horizon, I guess, isn't it, as well? Yes, yes, yes. And, and there are going to be difficulties, um, obviously, um, because people are still wary. Um, however, we need to, to maintain some kind of normality. And the, the, the most important thing is to maintain social contact. Um, you know, elderly people, they, they are, because of the underlying health issues or because of mobility issues, 
they can't access to go to the to to the shops themselves. Um, however, we need to come to a stage where they don't feel isolated in their own homes and they will be able to to access. You know, there, there needs, I think there needs to be more awareness um, about about aging and how it affects people. Uh, there is a lot of loneliness, um, although some people, they do have a good network of people going in. However, you do find that a lot of elderly people, they, see, they do feel lonely. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges um, that we have. Yes, it is. It's going to be an important time for the care industry. And let's see just how it holds up over the course of the uh, the next uh, 14 or so months after the pandemic and beyond. And hopefully we do see the review of the sector that the government has promised. And I think as we start to understand exactly whether or not we're going to emerge from the pandemic in full and what the recovery is going to look like, Ina, I'd really relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show with us and discuss things further, depending on how things are then, because it is important to keep tabs on just how the sector progresses from here, because we've seen a lot of change over the last year or so, and there should hopefully also be much more reform on the horizon as well. Definitely. No, I would go come back. It would be quite interesting to see how we have progressed it certainly would be and hopefully it's going to be a story of real positive progression it's unfortunate that we're just about out of time on today's show because i could literally sit and discuss the uh, the industry and the state of affairs with you all day you know i've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us and uh, just before Thank we do um, just before we do depart as well please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not out of the woods with this just yet but we're confident that better days of course are coming many thanks it was such a pleasure for me to speak to Ina Sutton, Managing Director at Sussex Elderly Care, onto today's programme to give us an insight as to what one of the frontline industries has been experiencing over the course of the last year. Um, next up on the show, we'll be joined by our Chairman, Lord David Blunkett, the former Education Secretary, to give his take on the goings-on of the last 14 months and also his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. Um, that will, of course, be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in 
that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between 
the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public. 
who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.